I invite you to please stand, turn with me in your Bibles again to the Gospel of Matthew, as we did this morning, this time to chapter 1, and we'll just read the opening verses of that chapter. Before we turn to our sermon text in Ruth chapter 4. Matthew 1, verses 1 through 6. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Amen. Let's turn back now to the book of Ruth, chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belongs to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, He drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and 
He went in to her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashan. Nashan fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I love it when... In God's providence, uh, the morning sermon text and the evening sermon text sort of mesh together. Um, it's almost like the whole Bible has one author, like it's telling one great story, which of course it is. This morning, of course, we considered Micah 5, which contains um, that wonderful address to the city of Bethlehem. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And in a very significant sense, we find ourselves tonight in those ancient days. Of course, when you think of Christ... There's certainly an even more profound sense in which his coming forth is from of old. Christ is the eternal Son of God who has no beginning. Um, The baby Jesus, born in Bethlehem, was and is an eternal person. And yet, he entered into history, too, didn't he? Because he was truly man... He had a truly human history, an ancestry, a family tree with a family story reaching back to Israel's most ancient times. And tonight we're going to consider part of that family story, part of that ancestry. As we see here, the birth of another baby boy in Bethlehem. Also from humble, unlikely, remarkable origins. And yet also with a very special and profound place in the plan of God, not just for his family, but for the whole people of God. So let's look at this chapter in three parts tonight. A reluctant redeemer, verses 1 through 8. A ready redeemer, verses 9 to 12. And then a royal redeemer, Verse 13 to 22. So a a reluctant redeemer, a ready redeemer, and a royal redeemer. So first will be this reluctant redeemer. 
Uh, I have to say, I, I think that people are a little bit rough on this other redeemer that Boaz introduces into the story. Um, back in, back, actually, back in chapter 3, verse 12, when Boaz first brings him up, where, where you think everything's settled, that Boaz has agreed to do what Ruth has asked, uh, but then there's this plot twist, yet there is a redeemer who is nearer than I. Uh, somebody else is a closer relative um, in, the, in the family of Naomi and Elimelech. So according to the, the laws and customs current this time and drawn from the law of Moses, uh, by his family relationship to, to Naomi um, and, and Ruth, he's, he's the next in line. He's the next man up. Uh, and so he could, if he chose, um, act as the kinsman redeemer that, that they've been hoping that Boaz will be. And, uh, of course, from that moment, we're, we're not rooting for that other guy to marry Ruth, right? That's not the ending that we want to, the story to have. We want Boaz to marry Ruth. And so, um, for that reason, I, I'm not sure how fair it is to really pile on this other guy uh, for, for not um, uh, becoming the kinsman redeemer for Ruth, for not taking up that responsibility. When doing so, we have to understand, would have been a really extraordinary thing for him to do. Um, you think of it like this. You, you can call somebody a hero for rushing into a burning building to save a stranger, say. Um, but what about all of the bystanders who, bystanders who didn't rush into the burning building? Well, you wouldn't um, say that they all did something wrong, necessarily. Uh, so much as you would say that the person who did rush in did something heroic, did something extraordinary, something above and beyond the call of duty. See, what Boaz does in this chapter, it's important to understand, it's not duty, it is grace, it is kindness, it is this extraordinary, exemplary chesed love and faithfulness that we've been talking about through the whole book. And that's what makes it so wonderful. It's what makes this such a happy ending. Now, I've, I've just tried to some degree to, to defend this other redeemer who doesn't want to marry Ruth, to kind of dispel some of the maybe more severe criticism that we might uh, pile on him. On the other hand, though, now that I've said that, um, and, and I don't think the historian is out to condemn him as a bad man, but the historian certainly is not out to commend him either, is he? What stands out about this other redeemer? Well, you could answer that question by saying, well, what stands out about him is that nothing stands out about him. In other words, he is completely forgettable. That's the key here. That's why he has no name here in chapter 4. Verse 1, where Boaz gets his attention sitting there in the city gate, city gate being the place where official business would be conducted publicly um, in front of uh, other people, um, and Boaz says, in the ESV, it says, turn aside, friend. The Hebrew word there is not the normal Hebrew word for friend. Um, that's kind of the English translators not really knowing what exactly how to translate this word because they're not wanting to be too casual, although it would really be a closer translation to say something like, turn aside, so-and-so. Um, not that, you know, maybe Boaz actually said his name, but the historian's not going to record it for us. Boaz knows this guy, but the historian deliberately leaves out his name here, and he leaves it out all the way through the story, and that's a very deliberate choice in the way the story's being told. And, and it's, it's, it's a very um, ironic point that's being made. 
See, this other redeemer is concerned that if he marries Ruth, then he might impair his own inheritance. This man doesn't want his own um, name to be forgotten in his effort to rescue the family name of Elimelech. He's afraid, well, if I produce an heir for Elimelech's bloodline or uh, family line, then maybe my own will kind of get lost in Elimelech's. And now we read the story, and does anybody remember this man's name now? We, we don't. We don't know his name. Whereas Boaz's will never be forgotten. Reminds me of when Jesus says, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Where in the effort to safeguard his own legacy, this man really misses out in a sense, on on this opportunity, this opportunity to become part of something truly memorable that God is doing. That's a good reminder to me anyway. This is kind of an indirect application, but it, it is to me. A good reminder to be cautious about being overly cautious when it comes to things that are really worth doing in life. Things that are worth doing really to serve other people, to make some sacrifices, to take some risk for the good of others. Um, in keeping with the law of God and the principles of the word of God. It's possible sometimes in the very effort to kind of stay on the safe side, sort of hedge our bets, to miss some of our best opportunities, really to make a significant impact by the grace of God for good in the lives of other people. And, uh, so that's something to keep in mind. Let this man be an example to us. Now, you might think I've gotten uh, a little bit ahead of myself here. Um, I haven't really explained very much the, the sort of legal and economic intricacies of this situation, this whole transaction. There are a couple of reasons for that. Uh, The first one is I think you can get the general idea of what's going on here between Boaz and this other redeemer without very much special or technical knowledge. Uh, What we might call the main point of the story is really in those broader brushstrokes that are pretty obvious on the surface, more than they are in the, the... finer details of this case of kind of ancient Israelite property transactions and um, uh, laws about uh, relatives and marriage and so forth. Um, Another reason related to this is that there's frankly some ambiguity about some of those legal intricacies here. We, We can get distracted kind of unhelpfully by trying to nail everything down um, too precisely. Uh, I'll touch on a few things. First of all, Uh, There are two main provisions of the Law of Moses that are particularly relevant here, although neither one of them applies directly to this case um, in a one-to-one kind of way, and that's what makes it so tricky. The first one is the law for the redemption of property by a near relative or a kinsman redeemer. That's from Leviticus 25, where if an impoverished person sells a piece of land, um, his nearest relative is supposed to buy it back Uh, so that it stays in that same extended family. Now, how exactly that relates to Naomi here selling this piece of Elimelech's land is not completely clear. How precisely Leviticus 25 um, relates to this particular case of Naomi's property, or Elimelech's property. There's some different theories uh, which I won't, about how, how the, these kind of go together, which I'm, I'm not going to go into because those details aren't really the point. 
Uh, and we may not be able to know for sure all of the all the customs and, and precedents from maybe outside the law of Moses, the, the kind of case law of the way things have developed as these kinds of tra- transactions took place over time in Israel that Boaz was working with here. But see, the main point is clear. The main point is that Boaz is definitely, what we know for sure, is he is seeking to act according to the principles of that Leviticus 25 law within that area of responsibility as this close relative who is working to make sure that Elimelech's property doesn't leave Elimelech's family and that Elimelech's impoverished relatives are provided for, that they're not left destitute and that they're not left disinherited in the land of promise. A couple of commentators point this out, that we can at least say this, and in fact, this is the most important thing to see about Boaz, is here is that he is very much operating according to the principles, according to the intent, the kind of trajectory, you could say, of that portion of the law of God uh, through Moses and Leviticus. And we could say something uh, pretty similar about the, the other provision of the law of Moses that's in play here. And that's the law about what's called leveret marriage, um, described, for instance, in Deuteronomy 25. You can look this up on your own later for the details, but um, many of you are familiar with this, where if a man died and he left his wife a widow, then that man's brother, this is sort of odd to our contemporary way of thinking about marriage, but this is a very key provision for the protection of uh, vulnerable people in Israel, um, the brother of the man who died was supposed to marry the widow, and then the firstborn son of that second marriage was supposed to succeed to the name of the man who had died. Now again, you compare that with the situation that's going on here, and it's it's pretty clear the details don't match up exactly, right? Um, Those laws in Deuteronomy, are about the brothers of a man who dies. They're not about his distant relatives. And yet you can see here that once again, Boaz is operating very much according to the principle laid down there, according to, again, the the intent, the trajectory of that law of God, that system for providing for widows, for protecting a person from having his bloodline disappear from his family tree due to having no children and so on. So Boaz, is his, his whole approach to this situation is shaped by the law of God. And um, there's one more, one more part of Deuteronomy, uh, well, actually part of Deuteronomy 25 that comes into play here kind of indirectly. You may be kind of curious about this um, custom of removing the sandal as the symbol of, of a transaction here. Again, there's a little bit of a question that comes up because in Deuteronomy 25, in those laws about leveret marriage, there's this kind of curious provision where if, if, the, if the brother of the deceased man um, refuses, he says, no, I'm, I'm not going to marry the widow. Well, she is supposed to confront him publicly in the presence of the elders, and she's supposed to take his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she's supposed to, you can look this up in Deuteronomy 25, I'm not making this up. And she's supposed to say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. He's to be publicly put to shame for not carrying out that duty. 
And the name of his house, here's this idea of the name again, his reputation forever. The name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Okay, now we have to be careful here. In Ruth 4, this man takes off his sandal and hands it to Boaz for a different reason. Okay, it's a different reason. It's a different custom. They are not going through that ceremony from Deuteronomy 25. Uh, This man is not in this moment being publicly shamed. From his point of view and the point of view of the witnesses at this moment, his removing his sandal has a different meaning. It's, it's, uh, you might say it was all business to him because, you know, taking off your sandal can mean more than one thing in different contexts. However, it's not irrelevant <laughs> that the historian is telling a story in a way that makes us think about that Leverett marriage law. And he makes a point of t- saying that the man took off his sandal because the historian is, is calling that to mind. He's alluding to that ceremony from Deuteronomy 25. If you think about it, what do we remember about this man today? He has no name in the story except for, oh yeah, it was that guy who took off his sandal and handed it to... That's how we remember him. We remember him as the man who pulled his sandal off the... Ma- and we remember him as the man who wouldn't marry Ruth. That's his reputation for the rest of time. That's his legacy. It's the legacy of a reluctant redeemer. Okay, now compare that to Boaz, the ready redeemer. We're calling him for point number two. This man who's, who's patiently working his way through this legal process to remove any doubt that, yes, he is the one who now has the right, indisputably, to marry Ruth. And while the other man is thinking of himself, this is something uh, lost and younger one of the commentators dwells on this theme in Ruth of thinking of oneself versus thinking of, um, of uh, how to serve others. This man is thinking about himself. Boaz is thinking, he's speaking of, of other people um, in, his, in his speech that he gives. Um, that commentator, Younger, points out that in Judges, he, he draws this contrast. In Judges, there's that refrain where everyone did what was right in his own eyes, right? And, and he calls it um, a self-absorbed, self-driven approach to life, doing what is right in your own eyes. And he contrasts that, um, not first with Boaz, actually. First, we contrast that with what we see from Ruth in chapter 1. This is a theme through the whole book. We see it first from Ruth in chapter 1. Now we see it again in Boaz. Um, this idea of, of doing not what is right in one's own eyes, but... Uh, and with eyes turned away from self, turned outwardly towards what is uh, covenantal faithfulness going to look like in my relationships with these other people around me uh, before the Lord. Um, in fact, this is really interesting. A couple writers point this out, that in the book of Ruth, uh, uh, Sinclair Ferguson's one of them, in this book, there's, a, there's an analogy between two pairs of people. Two pairs of people in this book that really the whole story revolves around. In chapter 1... It's the pair of Orpah and Ruth. And the contrast between them, where Orpah does the the normal expected thing, as she leaves Naomi, she goes back to her family, and then what happens? Well, we don't hear of her again. That's the end of Orpah's role in the story. Ruth, on the other hand, does the opposite. She does the extraordinary thing. She sacrifices everything to stay with Naomi. And even though she makes that sacrifice... Her story goes on 
to this extraordinary ending and, and beyond into Israel's future with the coming of David. So, yeah, so you see how um, there's a parallel. If you think about that contrast between Ruth and Orpah, now think about this other contrasting pair, Boaz and this other redeemer. The other redeemer does the normal expected thing, and like Orpah, that's the end of him in the story. And Boaz, on the other hand, like Ruth, parallel to Ruth, does the extraordinary selfless thing, the sacrificial thing, but he's remembered. And he's not just remembered, he becomes part of the royal bloodline. Um, the great-grandfather of King David, and after King David, of course, now we know, many years later, of Christ. Boaz is remembered and honored for all time. And why is that? Well, it's because, like Ruth, of his steadfast covenantal commitment to act not for himself, not to do what's right in his own eyes, but in self-giving love for others to protect and shelter and provide for Ruth when other people either could not or would not do it. And the people witness this. They recognize this is something very special that's happening here. And so they, they bless Ruth. Uh, they bless Boaz, both of them, in, in, in just the, the most lofty terms that they can come up with. If you wanted to bless somebody as, as blessed as you could bless them, in, in, uh, in Bethlehem at this time, then this is what you might say. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, the wives of Jacob and the, uh, that's, that's the Jacob's wives, the, the uh, mothers of the, the tribes of Israel. And then may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez. Perez, of course, was Boaz's ancestor. Um, but it's, he's, he's also important because that's one of the twins that Tamar had. Now, we don't have time to rehash the whole story of Tamar, but many of you are familiar with it. And isn't it striking? Why would you bring up such a distasteful story as the story of Judah and Tamar at a joyful moment like this? How was this part of a blessing? Uh, I didn't bring this up last time with chapter 3, but actually I do think that the story of Judah and Tamar is very much in the background of chapter 3. Some of the commentators point this out. Sort of increases the uncertainty, the sense of tension in the story of what's going to happen between Boaz and Ruth that night at the threshing floor. It's, 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 it's adding to this tension. Of, oh no, is this, story, is this story going to end like that story? But it doesn't. It doesn't end that way. Why? Because Boaz is not like Judah. Because unlike Judah, Boaz acts faithfully at that threshing floor. And so now the idea is how much more will God bless this union between this faithful man and this faithful woman, where Perez, who was the fruit of that union between Judah and Tamar, he became the father of a large proportion of Judah. By the grace of God, that kind of sordid story ended in great fruitfulness and uh, great grace as God built his covenant people out of it. But now the fruit of this union is going to give rise to something even better. It's going to give rise to Israel's greatest king, David, and then, of course, to great David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that leads us to the last section, which is a royal redeemer. A royal redeemer. And what I want to point out here is the way that title of redeemer, you can almost miss this, don't miss that that title, Redeemer, gets applied no longer just to Boaz. 
it gets applied to Boaz and Ruth's baby boy. The women of Bethlehem tell Naomi, guess who's going to be your redeemer now? That close relative that God has provided to take care of you and to provide for you in your old age. Well, it's going to be your grandson who's going to be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. So the fruit of this union of Ruth and Boaz is also called a redeemer. Um, it's important, again, for us to see the rich contrast between chapter 1 and chapter 4. Remember talking about in the very first sermon how tragedy starts in joy and ends in pain, usually ends in a funeral, whereas a, what we call a comedy in literature starts in pain and ends in joy. Often it ends in a wedding. Well, in chapter 1, Naomi, you remember, says, Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. There in chapter 1, you have those empty arms of Naomi. No more husband, no more sons. All she has left is Ruth. But now at the end, we find Naomi's arms full again, filled with this baby boy who has now restored to her that original name, Naomi, right? And she's, it's pleasant instead of bitter. You might ask who could have known at the end of chapter one that this would be the end of Naomi's story just a short time later. See, what we have to recognize, really a big part of the point of this book, is that in God's design, in God's plan, this was always the story that he was writing. To transform Naomi's bitterness into joy. To transform her emptiness into fullness. That's what God was doing from verse 1, from the moment Elimelech stepped out of the promised land, and of course beyond that in his eternal plan. But we also want to recognize that this story is about so much more than just Naomi's personal happiness. That's something that I think sometimes people get wrong reading this book. It's just kind of a personal interest story, just about Naomi as an individual, or just about this family and the way they individually in their own household experience the grace of God in their personal lives. It is about this family, but it is about so much more than this family and this woman. What's playing out in this family is God's grand plan for the entire covenant people of Israel. That's the point of the book of Ruth. See, God is at work in this individual family to raise up yet again the offspring of the woman. To continue the bloodline of promise. He's keeping his word to Adam and Eve. He's keeping his word to Abraham. He's keeping his word to Israel. I have to remember where Ruth comes to us in, in the canon, how it's situated right here in between the book of Judges, that sort of 
dark basement of Israel's covenant life and history. And then on the other side of it, the, the sunrise. It's going to come in First Samuel with the introduction of David as Israel's, Israel's shepherd, savior, king. And Ruth is the history of how the Lord was working to bring about that change. How he was moving, even in that time of great darkness in Israel, to prepare the way for that coming dawn. The book of Ruth is about God's faithfulness in that one individual family to carry out his faithfulness to his whole covenant people. But you see, it's not just that either. Because the book of Ruth is following a pattern, reinforcing a pattern that we've seen before, especially in the book of Genesis. It's about how God works because of who God is. That's what Ruth is teaching us. It's teaching us about who God is and how God works on the basis of who he is. How God has worked in the past, which is hinting at and shaping our expectations for how God is going to work in the future. It's teaching us that God is a God who loves to bring fullness out of emptiness. Who loves to provide hope where all hope has run out. Who loves to transform poverty into plenty and barrenness into fruitfulness. And you think of how many times God has done that before now in the history of the covenant. How he's opened the womb for women who could not bear children. It happens over and over and over in the Bible. All of those years of her first marriage, Ruth was childless. Ten years, I think it was. And now the Lord gives her conception and that's so important that it says that explicitly. What does the Lord do? The Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. To what end? To raise up a redeemer. A redeemer for Naomi and an ancestor for David and for Jesus. You see, brothers and sisters, this is the pattern that God would continue to follow in his covenant relationship with Israel for many centuries until at last, after promising many times to do so, he would do it once again. A woman that you would never have expected to be able to have a child. The Virgin Mary. When in the fullness of time, God sent forth not just baby Obed, not just baby Isaac, not just baby Jacob and Esau, not just baby Samson. God sent forth his own son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, to redeem us, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because we are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Galatians 4. Think of how unlikely of a mother Mary was. How unlikely, like Ruth, to become the mother of such a child. And uh, you could think also of the, the steadfast, Boaz-like, chesed love of Joseph to take Mary as his wife when he did under such circumstances. And as you contemplate all that, I'd ask the question again, what was God doing? 
this same God who had set the pattern already, who had shown his people what to expect time after time, and he was doing it again, and he was doing it in a climactic way to raise up a redeemer and a king, not just for Mary and Joseph, but for all of his people for all time, the redeemer even of Boaz and Ruth and Naomi, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, beloved, it is because of him, it's because of Jesus, it is because of all of the work that he has done to redeem you, to lay his life down for you, to purchase you at the cost of his own precious blood. It is in Christ, your Redeemer King, that you can know this, you can know this, that God is working right now. The same God who has not changed, is working now in your life to bring joy out of your sorrow and to fill your emptiness, to transform your bitterness into his blessing. And he may be doing it quietly. He may be doing it slowly. He may be doing it in an unexpected way where you don't see him working. You do not see clearly right now how the outcome could possibly come out all right. All you have to do is you have to look at what he did for Ruth and Boaz, what he did for Naomi. What you have to look at is what he's done for you already in Christ. And to know that this is who God is. This is how God works. And that you can trust that he is the same God now as he was then. And that what he began with Adam and Eve, what he preserved through Ruth and Boaz, what he brought to fullness in Jesus Christ, he is continuing now in you and through you. And in, in all of the hardest and most confusing and sorrowful parts of your life. And he's going to continue that work. and He's not going to stop it. He's going to keep telling that story that he has planned perfectly from the beginning until he brings it to completion. It's good news for us. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you've put the book of Ruth in the Bible. And thank you for all that it teaches us about who you are and how you work and how it pictures for us the way you would work again in the coming of the Lord Jesus, our great shepherd king from Bethlehem. And now as he stands and shepherds his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, we're so thankful to be part of that flock of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be children of God through our union with him. And we pray that you would comfort us, that you would encourage us, that you would give us uh, uh, um, strength and hope and courage to obey you and serve you in the days to come with this confidence that you are the same God who has not changed and that you are continuing to work out your purposes in us, even as you did at this time in Israel's history and supremely in Christ your Son, our Savior. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.